Hi guys, welcome to the Revive Stronger podcast. I'm your host as always, Steve Hall. Today we are listening to part two with Dr. Scott Stevenson, where we talk about all things bodybuilding. And in particular, we talk about kind of that recovery period after the shows. You're in for a real treat in this episode. Cheers guys and enjoy. Yeah, I think I think a lot of the audience will know that people use it inappropriately. And I think something I've definitely found valuable is like people like yourself, Scott, and lots of the people that I've interviewed on the podcast, they are critical thinkers. They're, they're true scientists. They don't have dogma that they follow. They're following the science and where that's taken them. And the best people I find, again, like yourself, Scott, are people that take the research and kind of their own experience and take the two combined to kind of that evidence-based practice that everyone kind of talks about. And that gives kind of the best results because like you said, and something I really wanted to point out to the listeners was we all do things and we all experience things. And those really matter because especially for bodybuilding, individualization is quite a big deal. There's ranges always to studies, the means of what get represented. So you might be, like you said, that person that responds really great to low volume, or you might be that person that needs that higher volume. And you are the person that you're gonna experiment and try and see how you do. And don't just listen to like one cherry pick study that says you have to do 45 sets say, and kind of yeah. have to think about what you're actually doing and what's practical and what's working for you. So I thought that was really well uh, put. Yeah, if you look at those data, I think they have the kind of the scattergram of, of individual data points yeah. in as well. And so you can see, you know, how much variability there is. Um, I do a, a, I think, I don't know if you saw, I did a talk, I think I did it at Body Power this year on um, why you don't look like a pro. Okay, yeah. Yeah, um, and I and I and I go through things like protein synthesis and muscle growth and um, biological individuality when it comes to responses to drugs and just basically everything you can come up with. There's huge variability, and there's there are people that are just non-responders, you know. And I have I want to go look go back and look. I have that paper. I want to go back and look again and see, you know. I, I always like to peer out those uh, at those uh, those those odd ends, you know, either 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 tail end of the distribution mm-hmm. to see, you know, like where's, where's the guy, like there's probably somebody in that group who did all those sets, who was the lower, lowest responder who, who got, who was, didn't do nearly as well as someone maybe even the lowest volume group who was the best responder. And so see what, this is what I really want to see happen more in science. I'm really, really fascinated by this because most pros train like this when it comes to frequency, for instance, which is sort of one of my big, my big um, pets, so to speak, is most pros, most people train with a low, low frequency, high yeah. volume of a bro split. And they get away with that. And I have some, we may have talked about this before on the podcast with, as it relates to satellite cells and, and those sorts of things. But I really would, that, that's one of the things that I think people can get good funding for as well is looking at those low responders those poor responders or even the kind of non-responders and then trying to figure out what it is about them that made them respond or adapt so poorly. Right. And then how can we fix that? What yeah. can we do with those folks? You know, so like a, like, like that study would, it would have been so cool. Um, I mean, of course after those, was it eight weeks they did with that study? The, I think it was around eight weeks. Yeah. Yeah. Either way. So like take those guys and then um, like, do a crossover, you know, or maybe, or maybe even periodize them in some way. You could, you had so three different volume groups, yeah. but 
like take the high volume guys and drop them down in the lowest volume. And like, what happens? Do they, you know, do the high responders there who go to the lower volume, does their rate of rate of adaptation go down because they no longer were using optimal volume for the way that they adapt? Um, or does that maintain? And do those low responders then, for instance, do they get a kind of a rebound because now you overreach them functionally? Yeah. And like, and, and now they're at a more optimal, like what happens there? There's so many cool things that could happen. Um, and then, you know, in, you have them rotate through, like move up one. So the high responders become low responders low or the sort of the high volume becomes low volume, low volume becomes medium volume, medium volume becomes high volume. So rotating through and you'd have like three different periodization schemes from low to medium to high and then from high to low to medium and from medium to high to low and see what happens there. That would have been, I mean, obviously that's a massive amount yeah. of time resources, but, but it gets to some of those questions. I think that's an awesome study to have yeah. done. Um, I really like to know how, uh, with the, with the lack of strength gains in that would differentiated the groups when you saw the volume or saw the muscle volume related to training volume it makes me wonder how much damage was playing a role there. That's one thing that could have explained some of that as well as the increase in muscle size, just from, from inflammation and swelling, if it was residual. Um, but it would have been great to see just like what happened a week later, yeah. you know, um, a lot of things that could have, could have been done there. No, um, I, I, I love the training studies and it's always, I think f for people that know a lot, they realize there's a lot of value within the studies, but you want more. There's always, you can never do them yeah. for as long as what you want them to be, uh, because right. it's just so difficult to do that, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes they'll do, um, like there is a, a series of studies that's really kind of neatly done um, from from 1990 that Bob Starin did. Robert Starin, S-T-A-R-O-N. He was a good friend of Gary Dudley, who was my mentor. Um, apparently, Bob Starin lived with a horse in his house. It's a story that I heard. It's a pretty eclectic guy or eccentric guy. Um, and they detrained women. They trained the bejesus out of them, all leg training. It was like three or four sets each of – um, all the failure of like hamstring curls, knee extensions, leg presses, hack squats, and squats, like crazy high, like twice a week or something like that. And I saw the greatest increase in fiber size I've ever seen in a study on average. It was like over 50% increase in fiber size. Um, but it was a longer study. But then they detrained them. Mm -hmm. And what made me think of it is they, um, they, and they, came, they, they detrained them, but they only had a subset. So they had you know, there's probably there's probably some selection bias there and that the only, you know, only the people who wanted to continue, yeah. um, you know, to be guinea pigs allowed that to happen. Um, but that's that's kind of an option. It does create a bias, like I said, a scientific bias. But, you know, with a study like that, I'm sure some of those some of those people in in um, Brad's study probably would have wouldn't have minded going yeah. on, you know, to see what would happen, especially because that's they didn't even have invasive measures of muscle size. Mm -hmm. so they could just keep on training them. You know, um, could it even maybe, uh, and I'm not, this is not a criticism of Brad. I just like to, just like yeah. to fantasize. So this is just me fantasizing, you know, and you, and you take, take those, take those groups and cut them in half and just see what happens to some of those guys. Um, when they continue on their own, maybe they only go have one supervised because now they've been supervised for eight weeks. They know what they're doing. You know, they can adhere to this, have them keep training logs. So you, you greatly reduce the amount of time and personnel and resources that are going to training these guys. And let them continue and see what happens. That would be really cool to yeah. see. But 
that's a that's a badass study to follow up on. There's so many. Uh, the sign of a good study is not necessarily what questions it answers, but what questions yeah. it puts forth. You know, and that puts forth a ton of. Que- Open up a big old can of worms. Yeah, it did. I, <laughs> there was a big. I don't know if you keep in. You're probably very much on the same so kind of social media path, but they got quite a lot of kind of kickback from it, and there was a, a oh, ton yeah. of questions, but. It was come from a selfish perspective. It was quite nice to see the kickback and see the responses. Be, apart from some of it, but some of it brought out nice kind of ongoing discussions, which were cool to see. Yeah, yeah, I saw some of that. It's hard. I, I hate Facebook because the yeah. interface makes it so hard. Um, I miss stuff all the time because all the the good comments get tucked up underneath and you don't see them. Yeah, but I, I saw some of it, and, and uh, it's too bad you can't just like ban people, like block people. <laughs> yeah. You know, as, well, you can, I guess, but that would, you know, for someone like Brad, that's just not time that he has, I don't think. But, but yeah, so I, I'd be interested to see what they do as a follow-up to that. Yeah, it would be know? amazing. Um, yeah. So something I did want to delve into part of the book, uh, this is kind of a bit of a segue from what we've just been talking about, um, but that was part of the, the tracking and enhancing recovery and talking about different methods. So you had sleep, sauna, heart rate variability, um, adaptogen, CBD oil. And I think some of these are probably kind of things people have heard about and maybe don't know that much on. Um, I don't know if there's any of these that you particularly kind of enjoy talking about or kind of are ones that maybe you see kind of misconstrued quite a lot that you think the audience would appreciate hearing about? Um, it's interesting that I, so I, the heart rate variability is a really kind of, um, there's a lot of undiscovered, uh, um, country there, so to speak. Yeah. Uh, especially when it comes to strength training. Um, the there's, and I go through some of the data, I can't remember all the particulars of it. There's some stuff that was done. I would think with like some, Chinese female weightlifters, if I'm recalling, and um, heart rate variability is a pretty complex topic, and I'm certainly not an expert there. Um, Mike Nelson is someone who's done a lot of that. You yeah. might want to bring him on, yeah. Um, but it, it seems like, from what I was able to glean, is that when you have some kind of a shift in your heart rate variability that is um, also supported by a change in your perception of recovery or your performance in the gym, that it's indicative of something as as to what that change will be, which way it will be. That that's where the data are kind of mixed. It's kind right. of bizarre. Um, and I, maybe there's something about heart rate variability in terms of you know the different frequency ranges. Uh, um, there's like different uh, overtraining. Overtraining depends to seems to differ depending on the type of exercise that's brought on the overtraining. Right. Resistance exercise has been so poorly understood as far as that goes, as opposed to endurance exercise, because many people are doing that type of research. So the hurry variability thing, I think, boils down to, first of all, getting a good monitor. I, I, have, an, I have an Apple Watch, but it doesn't even give me a, a, a good heart rate. Right. So I don't trust it really yeah. all that much. Um, and, then, and then hacking out for yourself what those changes mean. I don't know, from what I've been able to find, for someone who's a bodybuilder, or even like a power lifter, that you can say with, with the, the specificity that you tend to think you're going to get from some really cool electronic device that heart rate variability is telling us all that much quite yet. Right. Um, the one you didn't mention, maybe because it's not, I don't know if I have it on one of the bullet points because it's, um, it's not some people are all that familiar with, that I use 
uh, for recovery is a perceived recovery status scale. Is that I just didn't say it. <laughs> oh, okay, 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 yeah. That That's probably my favorite, to be nice. honest. Nice, yeah. Yeah, um, because it tunes in really well with auto-regulation. Um, and uh, you can assess it at different times a day. Um, and when you start asking people to assess how recovered they feel, um, then you can, then they start thinking about, well, how can I even know that? Yeah. And what are the things that, that what sort of biofeedback do I get um, that would give me that information? Um, so they start fishing around in their own consciousness and paying attention. So they, so they'll think, okay, well, how sore am I? Mm-hmm. Every time I get up, I, you know, I feel like it's like, you know, a half max effort squat just to stand up and walk across the room. Um, I had one client tell me not too long ago, like he knows he's recovered when he's thinking about his workout the next day. And he's like, he's thinking about, you know, things he wants to do in the gym. Cool. And when he's not well recovered, he's not, he's just not really that motivated, not excited about that. Yeah. Um, uh, I'll have people give me a, a PRS, a perceived recovery scale, status scale measurement, and sometimes they're kind of low. Mm-hmm. Um, and it helps. And, and when we then um, reduce the training volume, or increase food, or work on their sleep, or do whatever it, else it takes to you know reduce the number of steps during the day or, you know, all sorts of, avoid various stressful situations and we can get their PRS up, um, that off that's reflected in the gym. It it basically, it's, it's such a useful tool because it's a a global one that, I mean, I've been using this now for probably a couple years, I think with people year, year and a half, year and a half or two years. And, um, it's so valuable because then you can go in all those other things. Mm -hmm. Then you can go, okay, so now, you know, let's try a sauna today. I have a big section on sauna or, um, you know, the CDB oil is one I, I covered just because I was constantly getting asked about that. I'm not surprised. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. There's actually a review that came out that I haven't, I just saw it came across my email, um, like two or three days ago and I didn't, I didn't pay to download. I'm on, on the road and I'm on with my laptop here. Um, and, uh, and it, it's basically looking at CDB oil and arthritis. Okay. It's just one of the big things. And there's really not a whole lot of data on humans. It's all on mm-hmm. animals pretty much. Um, but but that that fits in the pharmacological things like NSAIDs, for instance, I cover yeah. somewhat substantially in the book. Um, it's an interesting thing because a lot of those all fit into this idea of a hormetic stress in that um, you want to have some cellular stress in order to prompt the adaptation. Yep. You need that. And when you blunt that with antioxidants like megadosing vitamin C, what have you, you will blunt the adaptation in various ways. NSAIDs can do that, but mm-hmm. there's also a, there's also a study with older folks at a ball state with NSAIDs where they show an increase in muscle size. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's probably because maybe the stress was too much and they weren't optimizing the stress that would, was needed to optimize adaptation. Right. And when you reduce the inflammation somewhat, then you had a, a better growth adaptation because of that. And CDB probably falls into the same category, I would imagine, um, in that like if you, and if you take so much CDB that you have no muscle soreness and like there's, you don't feel any, any um, residual stress post-workout, um, that's not the best thing, mm-hmm. I wouldn't imagine. Um, there's got to be some inroads, so to speak, that are made there. So 
Um, but it's highly variable too. Um, John Meadows is the perfect example. The guy never gets sore. <laughs> like uh, we did a, I think he, he told me we did a chest workout video when I was up at the Arnold classic earlier this year. And he's like, that was, I actually got sore from that. I'm like, <laughs> I'm like, John, I'm sore all the time, constantly. Um, this has become one of my topics that I'm digging into. I think I get probably too sore. Right. Um, I could get gains when I'm sore. I know that cause I've seen it happen. I can improve, but I probably am sore too often, too mm-hmm. much. So all those things, you know, get, get tied in, um, with the PRS scale. And you start to think about like, what's the optimal volume? What's the optimal training stimulus? And what's, how, do, how can I minimize the things that are cutting into my recovery mm-hmm. so that I can train more and have that stress, anti-stress balance, so to speak, um, optimized as much as possible. So I, that yeah. get at your question, I think. Yeah, and, I, and I'm kind of regretting, well, no, I don't regret it because you expanded on it anyway, the perceived recovery yeah. scale, uh, because as someone I... I'm not expert within the area of kind of heart rate variability and kind of rating those things, but I do use the same sort of scale as you've said there in terms of I get my clients to rate their fatigue, even in certain muscle groups um, and their motivation to train. And then I get video feedback from them. So they kind of talk about how recovered they feel. Uh, And then, yeah, you can do things like looking at how many hours have they been sleeping? What is their food intake? When did they last have a deload or a rest day? Those sort of things. And I think that is a a tool that is just so unbelievably simple that anyone has at their own disposal that they can start using. Yeah. And, and when they can't quite fit, people will start tuning in because they know they got to bring that come, that, come back to that with you. He's going to ask me what's yeah. my PRS or he's going to ask me for the little video interview. Like, what am I going to look at? So they start paying closer attention and it really – allows them to key in on how yes. to auto-regulate themselves, teaches them how to coach themselves. Exactly. Like one of the big ones that's just popped into my head um, is like literally sometimes when you go into the gym, you can tell from when you pick up that first 20 kilo or 45 pound plate how heavy it feels. Yeah. Like like sometimes it's like, oh, it's just, I always say it's like a tiddlywink and you just pull it off and it just like kind of floats under the bar by itself. Like, ah, oh, it's going to be a good day today. I can yeah. tell. And, and that like that's like two seconds of feedback and you already know that's a standardized thing and those sorts of things. Of course, those can also um, I think that can also play into your head as well. Yeah. You know, then you start thinking, oh, shit, that weight, that 45 pounder felt kind of heavy. This is going to be a crappy day. And then you'll create a self-fulfilling prophecy, create an expectancy, which you don't want as well. So. I haven't had this happen. Maybe it's just because of the way I end up getting clients. I haven't had anyone obsessed with the PRS okay, and, you know, and get like too, too focused on yeah. it where they're constantly overthinking their recovery um, too much. But that's a danger as well, I think. So. And yeah. <laughs> sorry, I, I, I think we covered that pretty well. And I think if anyone wants to delve in deeper into those recovery strategies and your kind of talk on sauna and things, I think they can delve into the book because I don't want to disclose too much and it sounded oh, really interesting. Well, um, something I did also want to touch on because I think this will spark a lot of interest is the uh, strategies post-contest. So you talked about um, the chapters kind of rebounding and avoiding the ghost metabolic damage. Uh, so I'd love to delve into that a little bit if because a lot of people have 
I don't know if you've heard of 3DMJ and they have the kind of a recovery diet protocol. Obviously, Lane Norton kind of popularized a re uh, reverse dieting and the kind of right. that slow incremental. And I think he's changed his approach there. So I don't know if you have a different perspective on kind of that post-show window and what your kind of general overview of that looks like. Obviously, it's quite individual. Yeah. Well, I, I, I mean, the after that big picture uh, chapter, I've got a whole chapter on the post-contest period. So I've broken the year up into post-contest, nice. off-season, and then pre-contest. And that post-contest could be anywhere I like roughly from a month to two months. It could be even longer um, because that's, that's where, to bring us back kind of almost full circle, that's where a lot of coaches will fail. It's like, okay, you know, you paid me for the 16 weeks yeah. pre-contest cycle, and then now you're on your own, like – and that's when people's minds are, are, you know, can be very, very messed up, especially if they ever dieted down like that. They want to hold on to that low body yeah. fat, you know, whatever um, uh, body dysmorphia types of issues they may have can come to the forefront. Eating disorders, that's, that's what, that may be the most critical part of the year mm -hmm. of them all, really. I mean, obviously, pre-contest is important, getting in shape and looking the way you want to on, on, on contest day, but you can undo a massive amount of dieting really rapidly in that period of time. Um, so yeah, I go through different scenarios. I actually have like three different examples of people who, of, of ways that you can sort of not kind of fail miserably yeah. sort of speak in the post contest where you're just like, ah, screw it. And someone goes from using a whole bunch of fat burners and they're eating a really maybe like a, almost like a protein sparing modified yeah. fast type of diet. Like they really had to push every lever to get themselves down to really low body fat. Um, and they're so fried that they just don't want to have anything to do with this for a little while. And then they stop training. They stop doing cardio. They want it because they feel like they're on this roller coaster with stimulants, fat burners, what have you. Maybe they even ran out of money. Like, so you're in growth hormone or something like that. Right. Um, and they should stop everything. Well, now when you're that lean, especially, you know, people, a lot of people have never been that lean before if they've died, if they died down for the first time. Um, you do have a propensity to put on body fat. I, I tie this into the metabolic damage. Um, there's a, a frequently asked question there on metabolic damage mm -hmm. where I kind of dig into the literature. Um, a little bit and uh, there, there seems to be it might be there's like a one study with the biggest losers yeah. candidates where there's some suggestion that that years after the show their metabolic rate based on their body composition their fat-free mass it seems to be lowered mm -hmm. um, and that's really what here's the thing about metabolic damage sort of in the big picture is that the idea is that relative to your your fat-free mass in particular um, that something about your metabolism is no longer functioning properly in terms of caloric consumption or, or energy needs. Um, so uh, that your metabolism is, is really slowed per se based on whatever your body composition is. And what people see is a normal natural phenomenon when you're that lean um, we've got a, a body weight set point, or you can call it a settling point, if including sort of you know behavioral and environmental influences that predisposes us to to rapidly move back to that mm. um, kind of constitutive body fat percentage, whatever that may be. Some people they just kind of ate freely and didn't do much activity, they might have more body fat. Some people are incredibly lean. I always say go out to the mall if they have a mall near you and just look and see 
some of that's environmental, but there are some people who are just string beans and they've got veins all over their body. And like, that's just how they're put together. And there's some people who just are gigantic. Yeah. And even sometimes in the move around, like, um, uh, there's a friend of a friend who, uh, has a horrible time with her weight. She's just naturally round. She actually works like in a warehouse moving boxes all day long. She's kind of short, but she's, you know, she's, she's, she may even be clinically obese, but she has, and she has kids that are hyperactive and she's running around constantly. You would never expect, I think she does like 20,000 steps a day or something like that. And she doesn't seem to eat a lot unless maybe she's sneaking in like pints of Hagen dazs that no one knows about. Um, but anyway, so there's this huge variability there and you're going to, when you're dieted down, your body is going to naturally want to move itself back to that body fat. So what you see is that the propensity to put on body fat, this doesn't mean that your metabolism is acting in an abnormal way. It just means it's acting in a normal way, yeah. which is the way that you don't want it to act. <laughs> You'd rather that it's like, ah, I'm just going to stay like after yeah. shredded. Like this is, uh, this is how I want to be body. You should, you should fall in line with what my psyche wants and just look contest ready 365. Um, so that's, I think, where the, the metabolic damage issue comes into play. Mm-hmm. And what I have in that, in that um, uh, post-contest period uh, chapter are some guidelines on how to, re- one, reverse diet, some ways you can actually do with the diet, and some sort of structured rules of thumb. So like things like you're going to have to spend a substantial amount of time reversing all the things that you did to diet down pre-contest. Right. So like abruptly stopping any of those things is a recipe for a disaster. If all those fat burners that you used really had um, uh, a substantial effect on the fat loss, when you stop using them, they're going to have a substantial effect on fat gain. And it's going to be of a very high magnitude if you cut them off abruptly. Um, So ideally, you've gotten yourself – so you're somewhat healthy, as healthy as you can possibly be, but you have to assess this, and this is part of what that chapter is. Nice. Is looking. So where where are you post contest? Are you absolutely fried, um, and uh, or are you? Do you feel pretty good? There are situations, I've, and I, I'm in this probably most of the time after a contest. I feel great. I start adding food back. I just want to go and train every yeah. single day because now I feel better. The food's high, and I look really good. And I'm like, this is the best of both worlds yeah. for a couple of weeks. You know, I'm, I'm full. The pumps are great. This is phenomenal. And you can ride that out for maybe six or eight weeks or so in many cases. There are other cases where people will have to just be reasonable with themselves. Say, okay, you know, I was just a walking – I was the walking dead yeah. the week of the show. I was, this was awful. And I'm just – I'm subsisting on caffeine and ephedrine and clan or whatever else the person might be using. Um, they're going to have to taper off that to be mm-hmm. kind to themselves because all those things are also inhibiting their appetite as well in most cases when it comes to stems. And they're adjusting the meta- metabolism and their fat balance and everything else. So it may be that the smartest thing for them to do is say, okay, you know, I've been doing – like I, I died – I was doing like way too much training. I was definitely overtrained. I'm going to, I just want to take like a a week off of the gym. Maybe I'm going to come in, I'm going to set myself out to do like Wednesday and Saturday the week afterwards and just do like a warm up set and a nice feeler, get a pump set, full body. I'm not going to train anything more than 45 minutes. I'm going to stay on my cardio regime, but I'm going to make it fun because I'm going to watch 
funny, good movies or I'm going to, you know, buy a Netflix account if I don't have one or rent movies. I'm going to do something that's that's good and fun. Um, one of the things that's super duper important that I use mainly, I, I try to get people to use when they're dieting down is I'm not big on cardio. I'm big mm-hmm. on meat as much as yeah. possible. So stay active and keep your mind busy. Um, so pick up a project. Think of all those familial relationships and things that you may have neglected in the past, a boyfriend, girlfriend, all the people that you pissed off and you're an asshole to yeah. and make it a, a priority to start remedying those things and doing things that are active. You may want to go see a movie, but it may be like, like maybe like, yeah, I, like my, I always walk my dogs no matter what, but let's say you haven't walked your dog the way you should have, you know, take your dog on some nice long hikes or maybe your girlfriend likes to go on hikes and you were, you had, oh, I don't have to do my cardio the last 45 minutes at this heart rate range and blah, blah. Now you can just go on a long nice. hike. Yeah. Um, so I've outlined all that in the book, the, the things that you can kind of do to ease yourself back out at least over three or four weeks. If you spent 16 weeks applying all those things, you have to sort of reverse your way out on all of those strategies at once and start replenishing yourself psychologically as well and restoring some sense of normalcy. And the most important thing to know is that um, th- it was an extreme circumstance when you're dieting down and it's not sustainable. I mean, unless you just want to live, you know, a kind of an obsessive, compulsive, um, really probably psychologically yeah. sort of a, a poor, a poor lifestyle, really, where you're constantly like, you know, being finicky with your food, et cetera, et cetera. That's not that's not a great way to live for most people. So um, you need to realize that you're going to go you're, you're, from where you are post-contest or someplace you want to be. Um, and you have to sort of assess okay, what the state of emergency that you're in the state of all the other aspects of your life that you've, you've ignored and then figure out what's the best, best way for you to do things. Um, with the reverse dieting, which is really important because food's the main thing. That's the main concern. Um, there's the, uh, Minnesota starvation study, which mm-hmm. I talked about a good bit and that's always cited when it comes to the metabolic damage issue. Um, that one's been like rehashed. Actually, the data has been analyzed several times yeah. now. Um, uh, and then I just, I just, finished re-listening to a book by Viktor Frankl, A Man's Search for Meaning. Okay. It's an excellent book I would recommend to people. Yeah, he was a, um, he was a psych- psychiatrist who invented something called logotherapy, which is, which is somewhat similar to um, Freudian psychoanalysis. It never really came into being, but it's basically about the idea that a man's search for meaning is sort of their central, um, the central uh, piece of well-being and what our purpose is. Anyway, he was a concentration camp victim. Right. So a good part of the of the book goes into that. And one of the things he says that made me, made me think of this just now was um, when people would get out of concentration camps where they were literally eating like a crumb of bread every day and they were withered down to nothing. Like they would ju- you just eat constantly. Yeah. Just, you know, like it was amazing how much you can eat. Um, and like I wrestled a couple of years when I was in junior high. And I, one year I, I weighed 135 one year and then I grew and I was like maybe 160 the next year, but they wanted me to wrestle 122. So I fought my way. Yeah, right. This is smart, wow. huh? <laughs> so, I, so I was like eating it like an orange a day or a cup of cornflakes. Um. That was all I'd eat. Probably conditioned me pretty well. That was a breeze. Body was a breeze. <laughs> like that. Uh, and I remember when I got done after that second year, I mean, I, I would like I'd eat all the food I could and I'd come home after after lunch and I would just sit down and eat like a whole box of cereal and yeah. it wouldn't even phase me. 
because I was trying to – so you're, you're so focused on food, um, and that's where coaches sometimes will just let people drop. Yeah. And so the, the way – I've got different ways I think are important for the – you can approach the reverse dieting. One, you can go and actually, if you have good dietary records, try to reverse your diet. Like literally on a day-by-day, you can do that. That's, that's a long path to follow for many people. Um, the other thing you can do is if you've got those dietary records as the changes you made as well as some sort of body comp measurements – um, you can adjust your diet based on the body comp and the body weight too and allow your body to go up a little bit more quickly but use that, those dietary records to keep yourself in check. So you're basically eating roughly about what you were when you're at the same weight pre-contest. Right. And this, of course, is a conjunction with reducing the fat burners and everything else. It gives you some structure, yeah. which is the kind of the most important, important thing. That's why I brought up Victor Frankel and me and, and the Minnesota. like Those people, it's just, you just start eating like crazy. Just it's, you can eat so much. You you probably been there. Yeah, I was going to say that the, what you said there. The most important thing I was going to point out was the fact you got a plan. And I love that you didn't just outline the fact you have a plan, but in the book you've got individualization there in terms of where's the person at. Because I'm sure you've had it, and I've had it with clients where some people can they can actually be in a really good place like yourself and just start training and eating moderately well like a bit more whereas other people you need to start feeding them up they need to just recover much faster and get to that point because I don't know for me with uh, whenever I'm taking on clients and taking them through that period it's about getting them to a place where they can actually start being productive in their off season because Mm -hmm. I think a lot of people try and string out that lean lean period and I've certainly been there and I yeah. haven't been really training well. I haven't been feeling good, but I'm eating a little bit more. So that was all I needed. But I don't think that's actually like a, I think it's kind of a bit of a, a unproductive time spent really. That's a first step that I have in the, I think I call that the dead zone or something like yeah, that. Where, that sounds great. Yeah. <laughs> well, awful, but that sounds like yeah. a good term. Yeah. You need, you need to get like, you know, get your body fat percentage up somewhat to start just because you, you're, you're mentally foggy. You can't train well. Your, your, your quality of life is just so yes. low. And so you need to get past that even, and that might take about a week. You want to be careful if someone's got an eating issues, disorder eating or what have you, that you don't set them off on a path that shoots way past. You know, they've exited the dead zone, the dead zone cavern. And now they're like heading up to the, <laughs> the mountain of adiposity. You don't want that to happen. But yeah, that's kind of a first step. Um, and so I've got those two approaches to reverse dieting. The other one that I, that I like for a couple reasons, it seems to work really well. Is to you, and this is what how I have people diet most of the time, anyways. That use a kind of a nutrient timing approach, right? And this is for someone who would be training, who wants to be training. Um, the only caveat here is that you you don't want to like start kind of operant conditioning yourself that if you train you get food. Yeah, but you can do that too. You can like I can I can't only really eat a nice meal if I train hard beforehand. That can be a, a problem people can have, but. If you're if you haven't if you've been eating out of Tupperware for for months on end, and you've been avoiding social circumstances those sorts of things, if you start um, if you keep with your pre-contest diet, essentially what exactly what you've been doing for the most part, um, and maybe adjust that in a reverse diet type of fashion week by week over mm-hmm. time to some degree, um, you can start you can add food mainly in sort of a post workout. Yeah. Um, or a, a peri-workout or mainly a post-workout fashion. So let's say if you have a nine-to-five job, you go and you do your nine-to-five and then you go train and then you go out with friends that you haven't seen for a while. 
and you have a nice relaxing meal, maybe you have a glass of wine if you do that, you know, and you have some pasta with a fatty sauce on it, God forbid you mix your macros together, <laughs> whatever it may be, because now you've created a, a good metabolic place for that and you're restoring normalcy to your relationships and yeah. to your life. And it's, um, so it's sort of a, a way to kind of like put your foot in the water where people are like, like, how do I start eating normal food again? I haven't yeah. been eating normally really at all. It's been so overly structured. So it's like, okay, I'm going to let myself do that. I'm going to train really hard. This makes physiological sense. I'm sort of a physio, I'm literally a physiologist or I'm a bodybuilding physiologist. So this is the time when I can take in this food. I'm going to have good metabolic flexibility. I've used up some muscle triglyceride. I've used up some muscle glycogen. I'm going to be able to store this, any extra nutrients in places where it's going to serve me. I'm not going to gain a lot of body fat. And then you go and you experience a meal, a guilt-free meal, that you've kind of created a sort of guilt-free experience for yourself. Yeah. Knowingly, though, you're conscious of it. And then you're like, okay, I just had a really good meal. Now I know what that's like. It's not like, oh, God – you know, you're not doubting yourself. You've got a plan and you've structured that in and you've, you've got sort of structured fun, which eventually can evolve into just fun. Yeah. And you can start, you know, having a more fun um, type of life that's not so pre-contest based. So um, that's the reverse dieting structure. Sorry, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, I just, I, I'm really glad that you've, well, not surprised by any means, but I think a lot of people do just think about contest prep and they think about whatever that might be that 16 week period and they do forget that post show period and uh -huh. like you kind of described it's virtually as important as that show period because you're not only recovering from what you've just done you're setting yourself up for your off season and so the fact that you've got a structure in place and people can then have an understanding of what to expect because if people are competing for the first time they might not know that they're going to be looking at 10,000 calorie challenges as if they're a walk in the park right. um, but they can expect that now and they understand the physiology behind it and then if you can sell them on uh, and have good reason for something then they're going to go and follow that because I think it's always important to know why you're doing things because it allows you um, you're more able to do the how of things because when people have no idea they're just kind of left to their own devices it's normally not a good thing especially when i think bodybuilders are very often extreme and they're either that person that's going to binge or they're the person that's going to try and stay too lean not many people find that middle ground the route that we kind of want them to go down so i love that you've got that inside the book there's um there was a paper i read a long time ago it was part of a, a health behavior class, this is in like 93 or 94 probably, um, about uh, sort of a theory of health education. And the, the bottom most important piece of that, if you're going to help somebody, and this is true in so many things, interpersonal relationships as well, you need to start where the person is. Yeah. And this is kind of where, where coaches can miss sometimes. You, I, I know a lot of times there's like um, – like really hardcore coaches, they got old school ways to do it. You just like do it, you know. And some people who've maybe been in the military or the family of origin or whatever it may be, they, they attune to that really well. They like it. Like, you know, it's black and white, my way or the highway, go for it. Um, and like, okay, the contest is over, um, you know, just figure out your eating. You can figure it out, you know, and like just do it. Yeah. <laughs> and, that, and that person just because because maybe they've been doing it for so long, they're, they've been in the, in the industry, they've been – competing for decades for them it's a breeze like it's not not a problem at all um to continue on a highly regimented diet that's what they like they're not 
empathizing with that person who's maybe never been through this before, who can't continue to sort of neglect their children and be bitchy at home and, you know, all the things that may come with pre-contest. So you ha you have to be able to help someone be able to empathize with them and recognize where they're at. And that's what I tried to do as much as you can in a book yeah. is is think through all the different sort of the range of possible places you could be in. I mean, some people do like I won't say who it is, but it's a, a friend of a friend who's who he competed like a decade or so ago. And then he came back now, I think, in his 40s and decided to compete again. And now he's got the bug. He did one show and then he did another show like three or four weeks later. He's going to do – I promote a show at the uh, end of October 20th in Miami. I co-promote a show. I think he may um, end up doing that show. And so he's he's loving this. So he's – and I don't think he's – you know, he's not hurting himself physically like that. He's just really enjoying the process of everything that's going on. So he's a guy that's just like he's, – he's gangbusters, gung-ho. He's having a good time, whereas some people can really, really struggle. So you have to um, – uh, you really have to look at that spectrum of things and you have to be honest with yourself too. It's okay. It's not like, I mean, here's the thing. If you really, really, let's say, you know, you push as hard as is humanly possible without, without passing, without dying. Um, then it's not weak to recognize that and say, okay, I put my body in the worst case yeah. scenario and my mind. Now I need to, now I'm going to be smart and address this. Um, by maybe not training for a week and getting a massage, you know, three times a week when I would be maybe training, you know, I'm going to stay on some of these things that are keeping my appetite down yeah. um, and slowly start adding, you know, be, be kind to yourself. Um, it's a hard thing to do. Yeah. So uh, it's funny because um, uh, like one of the things that I, I have in fortitude training, which sort of falls in line, line with this is that when you, you have a blast period where you're trying to progressively overload and move up the weights, et cetera, and then you have a cruise period, and um, I basically dictated how people do the deload, that you're supposed to drop down a volume tier and you train in certain ways, um, and various points in that, pro various aspects of that program sort of dictate how people do things. There's no like, oh, I'm just going to train harder or yeah. whatever. You, you have to sort of follow this. And, and, and being like diligent is following that black and white as it's set out in the program. And that's kind of what I try to do in the book is say, so your job now, if you're going to be a good bodybuilding soldier, so to speak, is to adequately and accurately and honestly assess where you are yeah. and then do the right thing. It's not just to, to prove how much you can beat yourself up, you know, time and time again. That's, that's not an issue here. The, 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 the challenge set before you is to be a, the smartest bodybuilder yeah. you can. And that's a hard thing for people to do. But, but having it set out before them, I've noticed this with fortitude training over the years now, is that people, um, they, when they have that dictate to drop the volume down, they'll do it. Yeah. And they don't feel guilty about it. They don't feel like they're being weak or what have you. This is true of everyone. Of course, yeah. I'm not going to generalize everyone. But I think that's an advantage of having the book broken down that way because – you know, sometimes coaches want to empathize and other people want to empathize. And then you'll see – you may see friends who did the same show with you and they feel great. They love how they look. They love maybe the attention they're getting from other people. They love going in the gym and like everyone like watching. Like, Whoa, she looks awesome or he looks badass. And they hold on to that and they ride that. Whereas you might be like, 
Jesus, I just want some food. I just want to go to a park, play with my kids or whatever it may be. So this is, I, I broke that down to say there's no right or wrong. Um, there's just what's best for you, so yeah. to speak. Yeah, I so, love that. And I think that is a great point, point to leave our conversation, although I feel like we could probably keep talking for ages. Um, I think if you haven't sold people on the book or at least given them uh, some insight into it and actually given them some really good takeaways for a post-comp period and how to look at evidence and critical thinking um i think you've done a great job of that and i want to thank you again for coming on the show if people do want to get the book i know you've got a specific website for that which i have linked in the description box um but if people want to kind of learn more or potentially ask you questions where can they reach out to you scott um drscottstevenson.com is my my website drscottstevenson.com i made a new url um this usually cracks a smile with people byobb coach Dot com, or you can actually spell out beyourownbodybuildingcoach.com and that'll take you there. And that just takes you to the site where I've got the promo video and yeah. the, the list of topics and those sorts of things. So I've got a discussion board too. People can go on. I answer questions on there all the time as well. Um, I, I opened that up for people who bought, bought the Fortitude Training book. I didn't do that for this one, for this book because I had a sense that I would, there would be just too many people for me to answer everyone's yeah. But it's three, it's three bucks a month, like a dime a day, which I didn't set up. To, obviously, I don't really make much money off of that. That's to keep trolls away, which yeah. it works beautifully. But if someone wants to ask me questions about this book and I'm getting lots of them on there, they can sign up on that. I answer questions every day. Amazing. For basically, yeah, for basically for free for people who bought the Forty Trading book. So if you buy here's – your, here's my sales pitch. So if you buy the Be Your Own Bodybuilding Coach book and then you buy the Fortitude Training book, which is just 20 bucks, then the Fortitude Training book gets you free Q&A with me as long as I'm alive and maintaining the website. So that's a way to, to ask me questions on anything. Brilliant. If they do. Yeah. Awesome. And uh, guys, thank you for listening. We'll catch you soon. Take care. Thanks, Steve.